Hello and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I'm your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And today we're going to be looking at Augustine as we continue our series on uh, philosophy and science, uh, which today is termed often science versus religion. We talked in the first podcast about how the more fundamental question is philosophy versus science. And uh, worthy of an entire podcast all on himself is Augustine. Um, he is, he lived from uh, 354 to 430 AD, and uh, so now we have a very very different situation from Origen, Clement, and Tertullian. Now Augustine is sitting at the end of uh, four centuries of Christian thought. Uh, this is after um, uh, uh, Constantine, sorry, <laughs> after Constantine had made um, Christianity a legal religion at the Edict of Milan in 313. And so, uh, and Christianity is quickly moving to a place of um, distinction in the empire. And so uh, it, it hasn't yet been named the state religion, but it's, it's definitely um, popular to be a Christian um, Christians are not being persecuted, and so he has, um, um, and also the Roman Empire is, is still going, um, right towards the end of his life, uh, Rome is sacked and burned, which is the beginning of the end for the Roman Empire, and it kind of cascades into, um, into disrepair as it just kind of gets invaded from all of its borders, uh, through the fourth century, or the, through the 5th century, uh, which starts what we call the Dark Ages. Um, the Dark Ages really are a result of just the collapse of the Roman Empire more than anything. Uh, it's ha- it has happened many, many times throughout history. You have a great empire that rises up. Uh, sometimes empires get conquered, and then it's kind of a transfer from one to another, as there was from the Greeks to the Romans. The Romans conquered the Greeks, kind of took over everything. Uh, and sometimes you just have a collapse where uh, an empire isn't taken over by another one, it just uh, just dies, and uh, it's taken over by lesser powers, and um, all the civilization and uh, education of that empire is is kind of lost, which is very tragic. Um, and, and that digression is going to be helpful because uh, Augustine really becomes, throughout the Dark Ages, Augustine is the guy that people look back to. If it hadn't been for the Dark Ages, likely somebody else would have arisen, um, but Augustine was living in that last pocket of time when you could go and get a really awesome education, uh, where the institutions were in place for, you know, you could hire people, you could, um, libraries were in place where you could write really big books. You could, uh, you know, I'm not even sure what sort of help he would have had, but um, it was possible for him to write really well. Uh, throughout the Mar- Middle Ages, um, basically where things were at was just recopying books, just just preserving, uh, and in that way, um, and so it was um, it was just difficult uh, to. It's not as though one person all by themselves in isolation can develop what Augustine did. He's part of a community, a thinking community, and more than even, you know, his his university and the his church and the people around him, it's, it's the whole society 
um, when most of society is is reduced down to subservient or um, to uh, what's the word? Um, just working the fields to make enough money to eat, and you had the feudal system, and you had all the little kings fighting against each other. Um, it was just very difficult to have enough people with enough time on their hands to have really sophisticated thoughts uh, until we got you know up to the year about a thousand. Uh, things started to change. Things, a lot of things started to turn around for the empire. Um, so that is all background to say why Augustine is so important. He was the greatest mind of um, of the Christian Roman Empire uh, before the the fall of Rome in the mid four uh, fifties. So, uh, with that lengthy introduction to Augustine, let's get to how he resolved. No, let's get to his story first, and then how he resolved philosophy and theology. Um, Writing at the beginning of the 5th century, Augustine was privy to almost four centuries of Christian ferment on the question of philosophy and theology. His thought represents the culmination of Christian thought on the issue. Living as he did near the end of the Roman Empire, Augustine's thought has was to provide the intellectual consensus for most of the Middle Ages. Consensus might not be the best word. Um, it's just... His thoughts created a big house where most of the medieval thinkers lived. Uh, and even to this day, um, I mean, we're going to talk about Thomas Aquinas next and others. Uh, I mean, the, Renis, uh, the, the Reformation goes back very clearly to Augustine. Um, and evangelicalism really is still in the big house that, that Augustine made. Um, although, of course, not everybody would agree with Augustine on all the points, but he kind of laid a foundation for what was to follow. Augustine was born of a Christian mother and a pagan father in North Africa, um, further west. Uh, so Egypt is on the east of North Africa, further west, um, is less developed, um, and, or not less developed necessarily, but it doesn't have the same cultural heritage as Egypt did. Although still a proud heritage, uh, it was part of the, the Mediterranean um, trade network. Uh, but he, he was raised on a farm, um, wealthy parents, but kind of on the backwaters a little bit of the empire. Um, and he had a, a pagan father and a Christian mother. His mother, Monica, uh, has become famous in the, in the Catholic Church. You see a lot of St. Monica's um, because she was famous for praying for her son uh, for 20 years until he finally became saved. Um, the faith that he had as a kid seemed to be vital and living to him as a child, um, but it wasn't up to the pressures placed on it uh, as he grew older. He was a bright kid, uh, and his dad really pushed him to get an education in rhetoric, uh, which he knew could get him a good living. Uh, and we'll talk about that why in future podcasts, why rhetoric was so important in the empire. Uh, but it was a way that he could make a good living teaching rhetoric and writing books on, on rhetoric. Rhetoric is just uh, the, the art of, of winning an argument uh, in law or important for politicians in a democratic society to have rhetoric. Um, so as he's in school, as he's learning different things, he had a really rough uh, primary school, they beat him, uh, he hated school, uh, as he got a little bit older he started enjoying a bit more, 
And at, at one point he read Cicero, wrote a book called Hortensius, which is now lost to us. Um, but in that book, Cicero really called his readers to pursue wisdom at all cost. Seek what is true. And um, Augustine uh, would look back on that moment as God calling him towards himself. Cicero wasn't a Christian. The philosophy he was advocating was not Christian. But in hindsight, Augustine said, God was calling me to pursue him in pursuing wisdom. Um, and Cicero called him not to pursue wisdom in one particular sect, but to love and seek and pursue and hold fast and, and strongly embrace wisdom in itself wherever it was found. So Augustine talks about the first place he looked for wisdom, obviously, was in the Bible. But there were things that he didn't understand. Uh, it seemed childish to him. And um, as he would later write, he didn't have the humility to um, descend to, to wrestling with the Bible and understanding it on its own terms. So he turned aside to uh, pursuing... Um, oh, I'm going to read that section because it's interesting for our discussion here. Yeah, I just preached a sermon on Augustine um, that you can go read and go listen to in uh, my sermons podcast called uh, Augustine's Confessions. Um, and I went through the major quotes and confessions and kind of summarized the book and kind of had a testimony time at church, only it was the testimony of uh, somebody that had been dead for um, 1,600 years, but his his words still really have a powerful effect on the church. Um, so I'm not sure how much in detail. Well, I've already done it, so I don't want to redo his whole testimony. You can go listen to it there. Um, but here's his quote on how he found... As he was pursuing wisdom, he looked, uh, picking up Confessions, Book 3, Chapter 5. I therefore decided to give attention to the Holy Scriptures and to, what, and to find out what they were like. And this is what met me. Something neither open to the proud nor laid bare to mere children. A text lowly to the beginner, but on further re reading, of mountainous difficulty and enveloped in mysteries. I was not in any state to be able to enter into that, or to bow my head to climb its steps. What I am now saying did not then enter my mind when I gave my attention to Scripture. It seemed to me unworthy in comparison to the dignity of Cicero. My inflated conceit shunned the Bible's restraint, and my gaze never penetrated to its inwardness. Yet the Bible was composed in such a way that as beginners mature, its meanings grow with them. I disdained to be a little beginner. Puffed up with pride, I considered myself a mature adult. So he turns away from the Bible, turns away from Christianity, um, lives what he would later describe as a life of wanton pleasures, um, doesn't really do anything that we wouldn't consider normal today, and that wouldn't have been considered normal at the time. Um, he joins the party scene for a while, doesn't do anything too wild or crazy, eventually shacks up with a woman who is below his station, and so he considers her a concubine and not an equal, which would have been normal in his time. Uh, you know, today, of course, we would look down on that, but it's very normal in his time. Um, and he, okay, just to summarize here, he he joins um, a, a sect called the, the um, uh, Manichaeans, and um, the main thing with Manichaeanism is that they believe there, 
it, it kind of grows out of Zoroastrianism uh, and other Eastern religions. There's a good God and a bad God. If you can think in your mind of the yin and yang symbol, the black and white kind of teardrop symbols that, that make a circle together. Um, there's a good God and there's a bad God. They're at war. Um, sometimes the good God is winning. Sometimes the bad God is winning. And so this is a way of explaining all the good and all the evil in the world um, according to Manichaeanism. Um, of course, in other religions, kind of use the same sort of schema. Um, this eventually uh, he grew out of. He, he saw the problems with that. Um, then he became a skeptic. Skepticism, um, after years of Plato's system um, being the dominant system, actually there was a movement of just kind of, we, we can't know what's true, everything's relative, kind of a postmodernism movement. And so he joined the skeptics for a while. And then he joined the Neoplatonists, and I'm going to have a podcast on Augustine and Neoplatonism. Uh, but for now, I think what I've said already about, about Neoplatonism is sufficient. Um, finally, he had a discussion with the Bishop Ambrose. That's something I forgot to mention in my sermon. A uh, fairly significant part of the journey for Augustine was sitting down with Ambrose, who was a very well-educated man, and that really encouraged him. He was at this time uh, reading um, Plotinus, who was a Neoplatonist, and Ambrose was excited that he was reading uh, Plotinus, he said that you could have fallen into worse company. Plotinus is a very good philosopher for you to read. It really um, will help you. It will give you some good concepts for understanding Christianity, and in fact it did. Um, and finally, uh, with most of his intellectual barriers out of the way, he finally accepted Christianity at the age of, I think, 32 or 33. Um, and this whole journey became important for him. For him, his journey towards God started when he read Cicero's Hortensius at the age of 17 or 18. And this whole 15-year journey towards finally accepting Christ as a mature adult, that was all part of him walking towards God, even though it led him away from God. I mean, it left him away from the church and, um, and righteous living, so to speak. To him, in hindsight, that was all part of it. Uh, that was all part of his quest for God, was his pursuit of wisdom through philosophy. So um, when you read the Confessions, and if you don't know what the Confessions is, it's just uh, Augustine's autobiography uh, where he shares his life, but also he, most of his major conclusions philosophically he puts in the Confessions It's uh, at one point or another. Um, and so it's kind of his his main work, well, the City of God is his main work, his most important work, but the Confessions is a really easy way to get started with Augustine, and most of his important stuff is at least mentioned in the Confessions. It's a very accessible work as far as, it's like, like it's easy to read, uh, <laughs> certainly compared to the City of God. Um, and the thesis statement is contained in the very first chapter. He says, You've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So this is his, uh, when we talk about Plotinus, we're going to talk about how that, how his mentality was formed by Neoplatonism. But all we need to know for now is that he saw humanity as being created by God. Clearly, as a Christian, that makes sense. We're created by God. And what that meant for him is that there's, so to speak, a God-shaped hole in all of us. 
um, that that idea that we're not complete, we're not whole until we find God. And so um, Augustine saw humanity and creation as coming from God, and thus the return to God is both possible and in fact necessary. So it's possible for humans in some way to feel drawn towards God and, and be walking towards God and, and be seeking for him and, and trying to find him out. Um, since the end of man is to be reunited to God, the quest of the philosopher, which Augustine himself had been following, was a Godward quest, not at all to be despised, as had Tertullian. So Tertullian saw all these philosophers looking for wisdom and said, you know, these are all heretics, they're evil, they're uh, causing heresies in the church. Augustine says, no, not at all. These people are on, a, are on a quest to find God. They haven't all found him. Some of them have turned aside. You know, they, they thought they found God, but they didn't, or they thought they found wisdom, but they didn't. But the quest of philosophy is the quest to find God. Uh, and so Augustine very much said this is a good thing. Um, throughout his life, Augustine continued to be a Neoplatonist, claiming that the that among the philosophers, quote-unquote, none, none come closer to us than these, a.k.a. Uh, the Neoplatonists. Uh, and he was a self-proclaimed follower of Plato, yeah, in the same passage that's uh, in Latin, De Situate Dei, 8.5, uh, book 8, uh, chapter 5. I don't know how to pronounce that. I should have written it in English. Um, okay, so that's that's beginning, is that he had a very positive view of philosophy. So was Augustine a liberal? Is this the same thing as the... Um, as the Alexandrian school, where he's going to try and squeeze Christianity into uh, philosophy. No, it's going to be the other way around. Um, so, although a self-proclaimed follower of Plato, Augustine's system represented something different than the earlier liberal school, but not, and did not re represent a revival of the This he was able to avoid through his use of quote-unquote faith. So faith for Augustine is going to mean something different than it did for Tertullian. For Tertullian, if you recall the previous podcast, faith was uh, credo ad absurdum. Uh, I believe because it's absurd. Just shut up and believe it. Um, but for Augustine, faith was the equivalent to authority. Now that has two senses here, and we're going to get to both. Um, right away, when we think of authority, we think of uh, that, that we think of somebody telling you what to believe. There is a sense, there is an element of that in Augustine, and that certainly that element was elevated significantly uh, throughout the Middle Ages to where the Catholic Church today there's a book on my shelf that's called uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church. It tells you everything, you know, from masturbation to finance to purgatory, everything. This is what the Catholic Church believes. And it comes from the authority of the Pope himself, and that's it. Um, this is not the primary sense that Augustine means authority in, although there is that in Augustine, and it was... Um, it, it has maybe become the more primary sense now. His main sense of authority is that there's some things in life that you cannot know unless somebody tells you. This can be something that somebody has gone out and discovered. 
uh, and you could discover it if you had time, but you don't have time. You can't go out and prove every theory that you learn in school. Um, and so in that sense, there's a lot of things that you receive on faith, so to speak. And by faith, we just mean we believe in authority. Somebody that's been to China, I haven't been to China, but somebody else has, and I take it on their authority that China exists and that it looks in this way. Um, this is the the idea that I defended in my uh, podcast on um, science and religion. And uh, this is, a, I think, a very uh, good way of looking at faith. Um, another way that we could have done this is talking about the different way that these different camps look at faith. Credo absurdum versus faith is authority. I'm not really sure what to do with the Alexandrian school, What, where they would put faith in there. It's kind of like faith is the same as wisdom. Faith is the same as um, rationality, perhaps. I'm not exactly sure what to do with faith with the Alexandrians. But, but for Augustine, very clearly, faith is believing somebody that knows something that you don't have access to. Um, and his fav- my favorite example out of the examples he, he gave was um, just basic paternity. And he said there's only one person on earth, of course nowadays we have paternal tests, but in his day he said there's only one person on earth that really knows who your father is, and that's your mother. And if you stop to think about that, you realize, well, you know, I guess my mother could have had another guy on the side, uh, and nobody could have known but for most of us, uh, and I understand maybe that's a painful example for some people, I don't know, but for most of us, we've always taken it as on faith that our Father is our Father. It's never been, we don't usually stay up at night worrying about that. We don't rush out to get a paternal test. We just take it on our mother's authority that our Father is our Father. And we live our lives according to that fact. And in the same way, there are certain things revealed to us in scriptures because God created us, we are created for God, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. There are certain things that God reveals to us in scriptures that we could not know unless he told us. And there are certain things he revealed to us in scriptures that we could go out in nature and find and discover, or we could read them in scriptures. And, and you know, there's t- two parallel sources of information, but they're not parallel because scriptures come directly from God and, and nature is less directly from God. I mean, it it's directly from God, but it takes more interpretation. Um, so, so, scripture and doctrine and the doctrines of the church provided an authority for Augustine. So, Augustine, by this time, as I said, he's in the 5th century. Um, by this time, there is a church... Um, that is forming, that has doctrines. It's certainly nowhere close to the Catholic Church that we have today where, you know, you could you could fill a 10-volume book on this is what the Catholic Church believes down to the, the fine details on everything. Um, Catholic doctrine at the time was very much, we this is what we believe about the Trinity, this is what we believe about, you know, baptism, and uh, this is, you know, the things that we believe are sins, and these are... You know, um, it was very minimalistic compared to what we have today. And, and through, really, I want to say this: um, throughout most of church history, Catholicism has been a very broad thing, where you had followers of Augustine right next to followers of Francis of Assisi right next to 
Dominican friars. So I know some of these orders came much later, but um, uh, Gregory of what's the uh, anyways there were room for all sorts of different ideas and different ways of reading scriptures and different ways of um, uh, yeah just just very different ways of being Christian and what happened after the Reformation <clears throat> was you had the, the Council of Trent and um, one of the one of the problems that was identified after the Reformation for the Catholic Church, when the Catholic Church lost, you know, huge amounts, like half the church left, they said, okay, we were too liberal with our doctrines. We need to focus down and figure out what we believe. And that's where they came up with the, the Council of Trent. And from then, the trend has been very much towards this is what the Catholic Church believes. And it's it's been getting narrower and narrower, more focused, um... Oberman has, okay, we won't go there too much, but I, I said that to say uh, Augustine had for authority the Bible and church doctrine, um, much less church doctrine and in a different sense than what we have today, what Catholics would have today, but still there was there was something there. There was a, something, traditions that he had received that he felt were authoritative, that the, that the Christian community held as authoritative. And certainly they would have divided between what was most essential and less essential. Um, and certain and sure and still debuted, disputed points. Um, let me pause this and just uh, figure out where we're going here. Yeah, so the difference here, between there's a huge difference between how Tertullian saw faith and Augustine saw faith. Um the information contained within scriptures and within the doctrines of the church did not differ in kind. It wasn't a different sort of knowledge from what you would find in the world in philosophy and science. Rather, um, there was less light given in the world through general revelation than there was in scriptures through special revelation. Therefore, when the church tells us something, what we are supposed to understand is that God has has given more light to the church through scriptures and through tradition. And on this point, they are an authority. And so we should believe them. We should respect them. We should receive that. And this seems to uh, settle rather quickly and easily the question of what do we do with contradictions? Clearly, if the Bible is in conflict with scriptures, I mean, if, if scriptures are in conflict with philosophy, well, scriptures are going to be right because scriptures have been given more light, more revelation than, you know, the scientist, the philosopher. There's always a chance that the philosopher didn't understand things right. And so the way that Augustine, um, yeah, the way that Augustine solves this problem is to say the whole, remember we talked about our bubbles in the first um, podcast. We have the bubble of philosophy, the bubble of theology. The whole thing is wisdom for Augustine. That's the bubble. And wisdom is the same thing as theology. So this is the theology bubble. And philosophy moves into that bubble. So we are all on a quest to find God. Because God made us. Our hearts are empty till we find him. Our hearts are restless rather till we find, till they rest in him. And all humanity 
is on a quest to find God. And some of us are looking into philosophy, some of us are looking into nature, some of us are looking into religion. There's all these paths. Um, and in one way or another, they, can, they do have the power to move us closer to God. But ultimately, we need revelation. We can only get so close to God before we need God's hand to reach down to us and pull us up. And I better read more quotes here from Augustine to illustrate that. Um, but, no, let me, let me just finish this thought. Um, so, philosophy is part of this quest for God, along with scriptures. But, scriptures are higher than philosophy, and philosophy will take you a certain up to a certain point. Um, seeking God in nature will take you up to a certain point. Cer seeking God through morality will take you up to a certain point. And at that certain point, you need God to reach down to you and explain things to you and, and reveal Jesus Christ to you. So the Bible is higher than philosophy in that sense. And um, for that fundamental question of what to do with contradictions, I remember we said... Um, the Alexandrians tended to use allegory to say, well, God didn't, the Bible didn't really mean to say such and such. Uh, so really there is no contradiction between scriptures and philosophy. And Tertullian would just say, well, everything philosophy says is wrong anyway, so who cares? Um, and Augustine would say, well, actually, um, scriptures reveal to us with, with better light what the truth is. So if there's a contradiction between scriptures and philosophy, scriptures are right. But that doesn't mean that we throw philosophy out just because there's some... like Augustine never would have thrown out science just because of Darwinism, as many, many evangelicals are doing today. Oh, we can't trust scientists. We can't trust you know the scientific method. We can't send our kids to university, etc., 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 because they're going to teach Darwinism. Augustine never would have said that, even though he did believe uh, in a little creation and, and things like this. He would have said, okay, they're wrong here. This point here is wrong. We go to the authority because God revealed to us what is true. But the rest of this project is people trying to reach up to God. And this whole process of wisdom and, and studying nature and studying wisdom, this is all good stuff. And we need to use all this good stuff. Um, so that's one way that he would use philosophy is to say these are people trying to reach to God because, you know, um, we really focus on how, I mean, evangelicals really focus on how sinful we are, which is true. We are sinful. We are fallen. Our minds are fallen. Our bodies are fallen. Our desires are fallen. But there is a sense in which people can reach up to God. Um, you can, you can reach out to Satan or you can reach up to God. And if it's true that somebody can say, I'm, I don't care, I'm going to live for myself. You know people like that. You know people that, that are not trying to better themselves, that are not trying to live in a way that's good for humanity, and that are not interested in spiritual things. There are people like that that just say, whatever, um, to hell with it. There's also the opposite, right? There's also people that are trying to live better, that are trying to do better, that are trying to understand better. And Augustine would say, Kate, okay, these people are on a quest. They're, t they're moving towards God. And instead of saying, you guys are all sinners, I mean, they are sinners. They do need grace, for sure. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't just condemn that whole thing. He would say, okay, let me 
tell you how the gospel can take you the next step. Okay, I want to read you a quote. It's quite a lengthy quote, and so I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, what he's talking about is, um, in this quote that I'm not going to read for you, it's in uh, um, Confessions, Book 7, Chapter chapter 22, no, 23. Um, the uh, Plato would have talked about how um, it's the analogy of the cave, everybody's in a cave looking at images on the wall, uh, and this is a metaphor for life, that we just see the vague shadows of, of reality. The world around us is just a shadow world. Um, and he said, imagine if this prisoner could escape from this cave and see the real world, not shadows on the, on the wall of the cave, but the real world, real horses, real trees, real three-dimensional shapes, and then to see the sun and, and color and beauty. Um, and then he said, imagine if that person then was sucked back down into this cave and all he could see was the images on the wall again. And anyways, he had a, a way of workshopping that out. And, and what would that be like to try and communicate that to your fellow prisoners? And that was kind of central to his argument in uh, The Republic, talking about the world of the forms. Um, but this concept of getting out of reality, this reality of the forms, and seeing the real world, it's called a platonic flight. Uh, I believe, Platonic quest or Platonic flight. Uh, and this is something that Plotinus then developed to say this is a religious thing that we need to, through thinking about the world and then thinking about the perfection of the world, and then you get to this place where you're in this trance where you're thinking about the world and then and then you make this leap up to God, you know. Um, but it was a very, very short-term thing. And it, it was supposed to be a short-term thing. And Plotinus was this amazing, you know, uh, guru of of his way of thinking, and he only had four of them uh, towards the end of his life, and and so Augustine is is sharing here, and it's kind of wordy, and and if you don't know the context, you don't really know what's going on, but he's talking about how he had one of these experiences where he was thinking about all the things he was supposed to be thinking about, and then he had this mystical experience of of feeling like he could experience God in some way. Uh, but it was very, very short-lived, as is normal for this. Um, and so in that flash of trembling glance, I attained to that to that which is. So he, he saw true reality for a second, he, th he felt like. At that moment, I saw your invisible nature, understood through the things which are made. So in Romans 1.20, it talks about knowing God's invisible nature through what is made. But I did not possess the strength to keep my vision fixed. My weakness reasserted itself, and I returned to my customary condition. I carried with me only a loving memory and a desire for that of which I had the aroma, but which I had not yet the capacity to eat. I sought a way to obtain strength enough to enjoy you, but I did not find it until I embraced the mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2.5, who is above all things God blessed forever, Romans 9.5. He called and said, I am the way and the truth and the life, John 14, 6. The food which I was too weak to accept, he mingled with flesh, in that the word was made flesh, John 1, 14, so that our infant condition might come to suck milk from your wisdom, by which you created all things. To possess my God, the humble Jesus, I was not yet a... Let me read that again. To possess my God, the humble Jesus, I was not yet humble enough. 
I did not know what his weakness was meant to teach. Your word, eternal truth, higher than the superior parts of your creation, raises those submissive to himself to himself. In the inferior parts, he built for himself a humble house of our clay. By this, he detaches from themselves those who are willing to be made his subjects and carries them across to himself, healing their swelling and nourishing their love. They are no longer to place confidence in themselves, but rather to become weak. They see at their feet divinity become weak by his sharing in our coat of skin, Genesis 3.21. In their weariness they fall prostrate, prostrate before this divine weakness, which raises and lifts them up. So it's kind of a longer passage, but it's beautiful in its own way. Uh, the part I had highlighted here was the food which I was too weak to accept. He mingled with flesh in that the word was made flesh so that our infant condition might come to suck milk from your wisdom by which you created all things. Um, that passage literally brought me to tears as I was studying philosophy and I was through the pre-Socratics and, and into Plato and, and Aristotle and then I was studying Plotinus and I was like, just... I can't even remember exactly what it was, but just the tension between religion and philosophy and seeing how the two have interacted and 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 just like feeling the pull of of all these different things. And then I got to this passage and it just brought it all together. It's like, yes, philosophy is trying to reach up to God, and there's some people that have seen amazing things through philosophy. And yet as, as uh, Augustine said, it wasn't until I met Jesus where God became flesh and made his dwelling among us that I had access to what the, what the philosophers had been looking for all along. And it was in that that I found the perfection of wisdom. And so um, that's, that's where Augustine is going. And that's why, um, to this point, I'm an Augustinian more than anything else. Uh, this is where I. This is how I see these two fitting together. Is yes, let's pursue wisdom, let's pursue philosophy, um, but let's not forget that that'll only take us so far. And in in the inability of our human condition, there's some things that we're not going to be able to see perfectly, and that's where authority comes in. Not you know somebody saying it's absurd, therefore believe, and I'm in charge, so shut up and 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 this is the way things are. Not that at all. Uh, and by the way, that can happen just as much for Protestants as it can for Catholics, as I'm sure you know. Um, but authority in that God and the Church has has seen, or, or, or sorry, I meant to say the Bible and Church tradition, sees things that you and I um, would never be able to see. God has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God has revealed that salvation is through Christ alone. God has revealed um, that we are sinners headed for hell uh, apart from God's saving work in Jesus Christ. And these things, we can explain them to people that are asking questions. We can try and reason with people that say that this is absurd, this doesn't make sense, this is unreasonable. Um, but at some point, you're going to bump up against, look, how many things in life do you take on faith? Because somebody has more information than you do. And at some point, if you are going to be a scoffer, so to speak, as it talks about in Proverbs, where um, 
you are just going to sit back and say, I don't believe it, I don't believe it, I don't believe it. Uh, how many things in life would you miss out on if you had that scoffing attitude? And some of us know people like that that just, wow, whatever, I don't, I don't, I don't trust you, I don't believe you, blah, blah, blah. Um, we need to have an attitude of humility, as Augustine comes back to over and over, of saying, I need to learn. Uh, I need to learn from scriptures at times and from the church. Okay, uh, that being said, let's read a quote. Augustine had a very uh, common sense approach, I think, to um, science and religion. Let me find this. He says, um, and this is from his book uh, on literal interpretation of Genesis, I believe. It's De Genesis ad Literam. Literam. He says, Often a non-Christian knows something about the earth, the heavens, and the other parts of the world, about the motions and orbits of the stars and even their sizes and distances. And this knowledge he holds with certainty from reason and experience. It is thus offensive and disgraceful for an unbeliever to hear a Christian talk nonsense about such things, claiming that what he is saying is based on Scripture. This is in the 4th century, or the 5th century he's saying this, much long before the creation-evolution de de debate. We should do all we can to avoid such an embarrassing situation, which people see as ignorance in the Christian and laugh to scorn. The shame is not so much that an ignorant person is laughed at, but rather that people outside the faith believe that we hold such opinions, and thus our teachings are rejected as ignorant and unlearned. If they find a Christian mistaken in a subject that they know well, and hear him maintaining his foolish opinions as based upon our teaching, how they are going to believe those teachings in matters concerning the resurrection of the dead, the hopes of eternal life, and the kingdom of heaven, when they think these th teachings are filled with fallacies, about facts which they have learned from experience and wisdom. Reckless and presumptuous expounders of scriptures bring about much harm when they are caught in their mischievous false opinions by those not bound by our sacred texts, and even more so when they then try to defend their rash and obviously untrue statements by quoting a shower of words from scriptures and even recite from memory passages which they think will support their case. Man, this is so appropriate that they think will support their case without understanding either what they are saying or what they assert with such assurance. And he quotes, that's from 1 Timothy 1.7, um, where it talks about people wishing to be teachers, even though they don't have a clue what they're talking about. Um, let me reread what I just highlighted. If Okay, so this is, the first thing he said is, often a Christian, no, if they find a Christian mistaken in, subject, in a subject that they know well and hear him maintaining his foolish opinions as based on our teachings, how are they going to believe those things? Uh, okay, it's kind of word and, wordy and long. I'm not going to reread the whole thing. Basically, I mean, if, if a non-Christian hears a Christian saying, maintaining false beliefs, and they know from their own experience of the world that the world is not this way, and the Christian is, has got these weird scientific ideas. How is the non-Christian going to respect them when they're talking about Jesus' resurrection from the dead, salvation by grace through faith, etc., heaven and hell and, and all that stuff, if their basic beliefs on the world that anybody can, can research and study are wrong? Now, obviously, this, this passage becomes um, used fairly often in the creation-evolution debate 
on my sermons podcast, I um, did a, a class on that, and I kind of laid out the four positions on that. There's young earth creationists, obviously, Ken Ham and Kent Hoven and them folks. Then there's old earth creationists that believe uh, God created the world in over a long period of time, but he specially created all biological life, um, such as, uh, uh, what's his name? He's right in my mind here. Yeah, so this is maintained by Reasons reasons to Believe, uh, which is the ministry of Hugh, Dr. Hugh Ross. And then you have uh, uh, two types of evolutionary creationism, one where Adam and Eve were specially created, but other biological life evolved, and another where everything evolved, but Adam and Eve were um, kind of specially identified by God uh, as being the mother of all living, even though they were descendants before them. So you can go to my um, podcast on that and listen to those options. Um, all that to say, I think Augustine would be cautious about taking a really dogmatic stance on something uh, scientific from scriptures. Certainly the, that, that the earth was created is a non-negotiable. I think in scriptures that's that's something that's stated very, very, very clearly. Uh, how God created it, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say um, that is a little bit debatable. How you're going to read Genesis on that point, I know, I know people will disagree with me. It's very, very clear, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there's at least these four options in how you can read Genesis, and that's another subject that I don't want to get into right now. Um, but certainly there's other issues as well where some, where Christians have uh, sometimes really put it on the line as saying, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to believe this on this issue and this on this issue. Uh, and I think Augustine would tend to be um, cautious about making dogmatic claims about scientific things because he does believe that scriptures are the authority. He does hold, and this is a way of holding on to orthodoxy, that he holds that scriptures are the authority. But he wants to be really cautious about how often we make that claim. And his reason for that, I think, is, uh, and when we're good Augustinians, what's going to happen is we're going to avoid the Galileo trials. We're going to avoid... Um, things like this down the road where the church is saying authority, authority we, you know, shut up and listen to us and science is saying no, that's not true that's not that's not what we're seeing in our microscope and our telescope and, you know, it, it becomes this conflict I think Augustine would say look, we need to be cautious about how many dogmatic claims we make in the scientific realm uh, that's what he's saying, at least in this passage. Um, but when it comes to things where scriptures are very, very clear, if there's a con conflict with philosophy, scriptures always win. So I hope that's clear in uh, the thought of Augustine, how those two relate. Um, before we go, uh, I'm hoping in the next 10 minutes I can talk about um, presuppositionalism and about Aristotle. Now, Augustine really worked in his day and age, towards the end of his life, he wrote a huge book I've got sitting here called The City of God Against the Pagans, or just The City of God, um, in which he explained why uh, the Gre Greco-Roman philosophical religious system of his day was flawed and Christianity was a better system. Hugely influential book. When um, 
was super important for converting the intellectual um, people of Rome. And, um, and Augustinianism was the dominant mental uh, framework for the whole Middle Ages, as I talked at the beginning. Um, where it started fading in importance was when, Ar when Aristotle came into the equation. Because remember I talked about earlier that um, Platonism really, really, really fits for um, Christianity. Because you've got the Demiurge, you've got uh, the, the world of the forms, and the form of the good, and you've got, it's like this monotheistic system, and everything is up there, and we need to figure out how things are in heaven, and then we can understand how things are on earth. Aristotle is very different. Uh, Aristotle thinks a lot more like we do today, because we're more August Mer more like Aristotle. Um, he looked at the world, tried to make principles out of the world, and extrapolate up towards principles. So you look at a hundred dogs, and then you have a principle in your mind of what a dog is. Whereas Plato said, there is something, you know, there is a perfect form out there. And that perfect form is what the dog is based on in some way. Whether it's, it might not literally be a dog, but there's some perfection out there that the dog is is based on. Um, so it's a different way of, you know, Plato's kind of looking up and Aristotle is looking down, so to speak. The other big difference is that Aristotle has an airtight, watertight uh, philosophy. It, this wasn't really realized at first because it's so dang hard to read Aristotle. Plato is fun to read. You can read him while you're going to bed. You can read him while you're listening to video games. Uh, or you can listen to him in audio book form while you're playing video games. Like, he's fun. He's he's good. Aristotle is really, really hard to understand. But when you understand him, and I, I'm not claiming I understand him yet, but what I've observed is that when you understand Aristotle, you realize this is a system that doesn't need a lot of help. It it stands on its own two feet. And so the whole idea of of Augustine is that Philosophy takes us to a certain point, but at a certain point, philosophy will admit that it can't take us further. Philosophy breaks down. And at that point, Christianity can step in and say, hey, I've got the solution. I can take you to the next step. And Neoplatonism literally was saying, I'll take you this far, and then you have this mystical experience up to God. And that's where, in that quote I read, Augustine was like, well, that mystical experience, let me tell you about how Jesus became flesh to unite us to God. And so that worked while the West was very influenced by by Plato. But uh, and Aristotle was really lost. He was literally all his books were lost to the West, but they were preserved in the East. And Islam actually the Muslim world used Aristotle and became familiar with Aristotle and was wrestling with Aristotle. And we're going to talk about that in the next podcast, about Averroes and how he developed double truth. Um, but what's significant now is that Aristotelian, that uh, through the Crusades, the West started becoming familiar with Aristotle, and this started becoming translated into Latin and started getting read in the West. And all of a sudden, um, this system of um, Augustine didn't seem to work anymore because Aristotle wasn't wasn't raising his hand and saying, I need help here, guys. Um, I, I developed this wonderful system, but I don't know who the demiurge is or what the form of the good is. Aristotle had it all figured out. 
And so the West needed to grapple with the fact that here is a philosophical system that was developed um, 300 years before Christ, totally in independence of Christianity, and it doesn't need our help. And it's a very good way of looking at the world. Um, and so it became the next question that Aquinas really dealt with, and we'll, we'll get to that next, is how do we de deal with, um, what do we do with Aristotle, basically? And what I want to say about presuppositionalism, um, that's a big word, but it, all it means is that um, it's a way of doing apologetics uh, that was, I think it was, Maybe one of the first people to do it early was Augustine in the book City of God. Um, but also Blaise Pascal and contemporary people like Van Til and John Frame and, and others do it. Um, presuppositionalism is the way of doing apologetics, of, of explaining our faith, by first of all saying how other philosophical systems all have a flaw. So you list the philosophical systems and you say, this one has a flaw here, this one has a flaw here. And then you explain that when you start from the belief that there is a God, that he is good, that he created the world, etc., when you start with the right sorts of first principles based on Christianity, then you can create a workable um, philosophical system. But every other philosophical system in the world is going to fail if it doesn't have God in the equation somewhere. Um, and presuppositionalism is really popular and really controversial right now in apologetic circles and in, you know, creation or Christian atheist debates and stuff like that. Um, two things I want to say about it. First of all, it takes a huge burden of responsibility. Burden of responsibility is how much, um, how much you need to prove to win the argument. So presuppositionalism basically says every other philosophy in the world is wrong. Only a Christian philosophy is right. So you need to prove not only is your philosophy right, but all the other philosophies are wrong. Which is why, you know, Augustine's book, The City of God, is massive. Um, it, and in the time and, and how much cost it would have made to make, I mean, it's, it's monumental. Uh, and that's why uh, Blaise Pascal, who also did this, wrote, I mean, he never finished his book, he died young, but uh, his book, uh, Pensée, uh, Pensée, uh, I don't even know how you would say that in English. Uh, thoughts, I guess. Um, it's a huge book, and he's trying to, to dismantle all the philosophical systems of, of his day. As well, uh, what's his name? Uh, Francis Schaeffer, How Shall We Then Live? Goes through all the philosophical systems, lists them out, and then dismantles them. Uh, so that's all fine and well. I found presuppositionalism as, as very helpful to me, uh, not only in, in developing what a good, Christian philosophical system could be, uh, although it just presents one usually, and it's usually you know based on a, a reformed, uh, which is a revived Augustinian you know uh, Neoplatonist system. Uh, I don't mean that pejoratively. That's just one way of doing philosophy. It's only one system. There's other ways of doing Christian philosophy. Um, so I found it helpful, but. Um, I have found, as I've, you know, really liked some of these authors, and then I've given them some time, come back to them, I feel as though due to the sheer enormity of the task of dismantling, 
I mean, Augustine had it easy in his day. He just had to deal with philosophy up to his time. Now we've got 2,500 years of philosophies that we need to try and dismantle. And due to the breadth of that project, sometimes presuppositionalism can end up a little bit shallow in some of its treatment of some of these amazing thinkers. And the second thing I want to say is that this whole approach that Augustine had of it's all a quest for wisdom and philosophy sneaks in here and it's part of it, um, it kind of presupposes a weak philosophical system, such as Neoplatonism or Platonism itself. Um, this works. This doesn't work as good when you have a philosoph philosophical system such as Aristotle, like, like Thomas Aquinas had in the Middle Ages, but also such as modernity and Immanuel Kant and um, uh, humanism such as we have today. Because honestly, you know, Sure, there's uneducated, you know, internet atheists out there, but there are also very well-educated secular humanists that have everything figured out, and they have their whole worldview, and they're not raising their hand and saying, I need you. Um, and so it doesn't always work to say philosophy will take you this far and Christianity will take you the rest of the way. Um... And that's where Thomas Aquinas is going to come in and show us a way where you can have both of these systems side by side, so to speak. And philosophy has its domain, theology has its domain, and there's interaction between the two. Um, but theology still stays theology, philosophy still stays philosophy. Alright, we've covered a lot of ground on this podcast. I want to close it up before it gets to an hour. Um... We'll move on now to talk about Averroes and some other thinkers in the Middle Ages, and then we'll get to our, our um, paper here on Thomas Aquinas. Have a good day.